out there, my name is Morris. Welcome to episode 144 of Love That Album. This show is proudly part of the Pantheon Network of Music Podcasts. Thanks so much for your company. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, this episode round, I'm doing something I rarely do on the show. I'm featuring an author. There have been a small number of writers on the show before, but it doesn't happen too often. I'm really, really excited to feature a discussion I had with Jeff Apter about his new book, Behind Dark Eyes, The True Story of John. English. Jeff is one of Australia's leading music biographers. If you're a fan of ACDC, Skyhooks, Johnny O'Keefe, or a ton of other icons in our music history, then Jeff has got you covered. However, he's written about rock music outside of Australia as well, having spent time living in the US and writing for Rolling Stone back in the 1980s. If you're Australian and of a certain age, then explaining who John English is would seem to be a bit of a silly activity. In the 70s and 80s, he was your big he was absolutely everywhere. For everybody else, however, he was a rock star, an actor on TV and stage, and a composer of musicals. Sure, there are entertainers who've dabbled in more than one field, but I don't really think anyone has done quite as much as John English did, and certainly not at the time he was doing it. He was the greatest Judas ever in Jesus Christ Superstar, and he was the pirate king in the revival of the Pirates of Penzance back in the 80s. He's released a swag of really great pop songs that fans like me lapped up, but as inevitable, he also put sweat into ambitious endeavours that weren't as appreciated as they could have been. I won't go into anything else now. I'll leave it for the discussion with Jeff, but we talk about why he had the strong work ethic he did. Sadly, John passed away in 2016, but it's great to see that there are still many music fans out there who hold his legacy close to their hearts. So what we'll do now is we'll go for a short break. Joanne will provide the contact details for the show. Then I'll present my chat with Jeff. After that, I'll be back to talk about what will be the focus of episode 145. You're listening to Love That Album. I got a dusty old pile of vinyl records sitting on my floor. We hope you're enjoying the show. You can find previous episodes at lovethatalbumpodcast.blogspot.com or you can get it along with any of the other great music discussion shows at rockandrollarchaeology.com, all part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. To keep up to date, subscribe to the show via Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or your podcast app of choice. You can email Morris with feedback or album suggestions at rrrkitchen at yahoo.com.au. Join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash love that album and start a music-related discussion. Hey there, it's Judd here from the When Albums Collide podcast. Each week, my co-host Pedro and I review two albums that came out at exactly the same time. One of them wildly successful, the other, not so much. We'll try to work out just what happened when these albums collided. There are laughs, fun bits of trivia, special guests, and a reassuring lack of any viruses. Here's a sneak preview of one of our episodes. Following the uh, September 11, 2001 attacks on the Twin Towers, sales of the album and its lead single Only Time skyrocketed after it was used by several radio and television networks in their coverage and the aftermath of the attacks. Without sounding insensitive, that is one hell of a marketing strategy. <laughs> yeah, no, that might be, that might oh, happen. I wonder how Anya feels about it. Like, how would she have felt at that time? <laughs> 
there is a good possibility that Enya could have been involved with 9-11 simply to get the sales of her album up. I, oh I can argue Oh my god, you're going to blow this case wide I can open. Argue. I, I'm going to argue that and um, <laughs> I will have some definitive proof. You yeah. heard it here first, everybody. The When Albums Collide podcast, every Monday on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Some highway east of Omaha. You can listen to the engine moaning out its one note song. You can think about the woman or the girl you knew the night before. Welcome back to episode 144 of the Love That Album podcast. And on a Skype connection, I have Jeff Apter. He's the biographer and author behind the new book, Behind Dark Eyes, The True Story of John English. Welcome to the show, Jeff. Thanks for having me on. So I want to say, first of all, congratulations on the release of the biography. You've got a long history of writing books, I mean, predominantly about Australian musicians, but you've done sports stuff. And you've also done, as we were speaking off air before, a biography of Jeff Buckley. And that's certainly something I need to go out and get. But you've written books about the Young Brothers, John Farnham, the Finn Brothers, Johnny O'Keefe, Mark Hunter, Shirley Strawn, and now John English. Yeah, I've basically written my teenage is what I've done. Right, exa- exactly. <laughs> um, I mean, I, I only realised that a few years ago, to be honest, is that I'm going, hang on, why do I know these stories so well? And of course, it's, you know, Western suburbs, Sydney, late 60s, uh, mid-70s, countdown era, that kind of halcyon days of uh, live rock and roll, that time in, a, in Australia when you could go out on a Tuesday night and see any number of great bands and realise that... 500 people felt the same way Mm. you know it was wasn't a bad time to grow up as far as the musical education is concerned what draws you to any individual musician or singer as subject matter for a book is it someone who you had to be particularly drawn to as a performer do they have to have had a great story or is it just that they had a wonderful back catalogue and what particularly drew you to John English in that regard yeah it's always story for me um, it helps that I, if I know the music and know the, the history or whatever their careers however their careers evolved but as a writer if you don't have a story you don't have a book you know you basically have a, a bunch of album reviews <laughs> and, right. and I've written those books early on in my career you know I wrote books about people whose music I didn't know so well and it just turned into very large and tedious overwritten series of and then they made the new record and then six months later yeah, blah 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 it was really boring mm-hmm. and I just had a kind of a I don't know just this moment in my career after about maybe five or six books and I just went why don't I write about what I really know and what I can reflect upon and probably just subtly insert myself in the story in one way or another if not quite literally certainly I know as I'm writing something oh yeah I was there I was at that show I felt that show I, I just I just feel like my connection is much stronger uh, with John English it was a classic case of writing about what I know because growing up as I say kind of countdown era I knew him from there but my exposure to him was more through live shows with the Foster Brothers in the 80s my older brother was a big fan and in fact I dedicated the book to my older brother because he said to me you've got to 
to come and see John English and the Foster Brothers. And this is a period where my friends and I, we're into Dylan, we're into Lou Reed, we're into Bowie, we're into, you know, serious stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, we're into the real, and most of those artists being either just past their peak or at their peak. It's like, John English, you know, he's just, just that guy on Countdown. He said, no, no, you've got to come and see him with the Foster Brothers. It's a different thing. And I swear, Boris was like being hit by a truck. I had no idea. I knew him as a pop singer. Mm. You know, and suddenly he's in this rock and roll band and a really, really good rock and roll band who not only could just bowl you over, but they had the added element of comedy. They were funny. You know, John's natural front man who could wear the leather trousers as well as Jim Morrison. But unlike the Lizard King, he could stop mid-song and tell a joke, spar with the audience, spar with the band, just do something that kind of, which he did so well later on with the Pirates of Penzance. But he was doing it in rock and roll, because if you think about it, as much as I love seeing Cold Chisel and Midnight Oil and all these great bands of that era, the communication between band and audience was a bit limited. It was like the band was on stage doing their thing and it was fantastic, but it's unlikely that Peter Garrett was going to stop mid-song and conduct, say, what did they used to call it? The floor show, which is what the Foster Brothers used to do. <laughs> so it wasn't going to happen. So I remember going away from those first that first show in particular going, I feel like I've been to a rock show, but I feel like I've been to something else as well, like a really sort of personal audience with someone. You know, the guy had such charisma and, you know, like I said, he had this great band around him. So I connected on a whole bunch of different levels. And frankly, through the 80s, which, you know, was this peak period in Australian live music, I think I saw John and the Foster Brothers as much as I saw anybody else, you know, as much as I saw the sports or Midnight Oil or any of these other great bands that I saw frequently at the time. So, yeah, that was my initial connection. I kept charting his career beyond that, but just kind of quietly, I, I saw the Pirates, I saw a couple of the other Gilbert and Sullivan productions, I knew that he was still touring. Then when he died, his family reached out to me and said, you know, John actually liked your work on a previous book called Dirty Deeds, which I helped ghostwrite with Mark Evans from ACDC. Mm-hmm. And he was a real fan of that book. And apparently while John was still around, he said, you know, I'd love to meet this guy and maybe see if we could work together. So it came about in an unfortunate way that I came to be writing this book. You know, the fact he died and his family approached me afterwards. But um, yeah, I just found myself drawing back on that stuff, particularly from the early 80s. Just, you know, some of my favorite rock and roll shows that I'd ever been to and things that I'd like to think I've seen a lot of great artists, both local and international. But I just remember John as a front man, just being the most charismatic, I think, Australian front man I can recall. You bring up a really good point. The, the whole issue about him being so many things to so many people, because yeah. yeah, he was John English, the comedian. And we know like he, so he did whatever anyone else thinks of all together now, but he put everything into it and he, he took that seriously. He was, he was comical in there. He was comedic on stage. And I do want to come back to that as a separate entity later on. I got a, what I think is a funny story, but he did musical theatre both as a performer and as a composer. And we'll certainly be talking about that later on. Uh, he was you know, the leader of this rock band. He did Crawford Productions on TV. <laughs> I mean, I, I think I sent you a note the other day saying that a mate had dropped around a DVD of his episode of Homicide called Stopover. And I didn't get beyond the first 30 minutes, I've got to confess. But. <laughs> and I, I suspect that was more, oh, he's the big ticket item at the moment. Mm. We, we'd better get him on this show. But he did so many things. I just want your opinion. Who do you think was 
a real peer to him. I mean, you know, we had lots of other great front men in the 70s and in the 80s, you know, your, your Shirley Strawns and your Bon Scotts and the like. And they were doing what they were doing absolutely brilliantly. But John was doing so much more. And th- there was a lot of people in the theatre community or the TV community. But no one was doing, certainly not at that time, as much as he was doing. So is there sure. anyone who you'd say is like, who's the closest to a peer to John English? Yeah, no, I've been asked that question a few times now, and I can't think of anyone, to be honest. A lot of people dabbled, like uh, Strong went to TV. Angry Anderson went and did, you know, the theatre. Uh, Mark Hunter actually replaced John in Rasputin from memory and played him a few times. John Farnham went on to do Superstar, you know, John Stevens, Kate Sobrano, all these people. But no one, to my memory, outside of some, probably someone, and this sounds really odd, but someone like Helen Reddy, okay? Helen Reddy in the 60s, in Australia, she was an all-round entertainer. She could sing, she could dance, she could act. Then she went to America, where she became probably best known as a singer. But she did movies. She did stage productions as well. She was on Broadway. You know, she did some big, big things, but not here. So we didn't really know about it as much. But as far as amongst John's peers, no one. A lot of people dabbled in these different areas. And my explanation for it is that you have to understand where John came from. Very working class, you know. His dad was a baggage handler out at Sydney Airport, you know. His mum was uh, this really quite eccentric woman who one of the first things she ever told John as a kid growing up was don't trust authority, don't respect authority. They don't know what they're doing. And it's so he came from quite a, a curious, unusual background, but also very working class. So you had to be gainfully employed at all times. Remember when John went into Superstar, he was working as an accountant in an office. When John was playing before that with Sebastian Hardy, he had a series of office jobs or he was half-heartedly trying to train to be a teacher. So it was never as if he stood still. And everything that he took on throughout the 40-year span of his career was first and foremost a job of work. It's what I'm doing next. Superstar. Now, oh, okay, I'm making an album. Then we're going on tour. Oh, something came up in television. Okay, I'm going to do that next. Because keep in mind, too, that he had an ever-expanding family. You know, he had four young kids. So, John, I don't think he ever um, – it's hard to say that he ever planned his career with any great, I don't know, um, foresight. It was more like, what's next? Oh, Crawford's great. I'm going to do two days on Homicide. Fantastic. Well, then the band and I are going to be touring for a week. Oh, we've got to go into the studio to make another record. Oh, there's an opportunity to do something in the theatre. Fantastic, I'll do that as well. So, you know, he just had a very blue-collar, working-class attitude and all this stuff. He wasn't pretentious about any of it. It wasn't as though he's going, well, hang on, if I do that, it's going to interrupt my momentum as a rock and roller. It was more about, how am I going to get my next paycheck? What's going to take me to that next? Well, he was very ambitious, don't get me wrong. But at the same time, he knew that he had to keep working. And just as it happened, he had this great uh, adaptability. And he was found that, you know, found that he could do all these Crawford's production, which led to Against the Wind, which was a very straight period melodrama. And then that eventually down the line led to All Together Now, which as you say, probably not the greatest sitcom ever created. Yesterday was a memory I might have been But rock and roll never forgets Forgives our regrets Nothing comes easy All Together Now Yesterday was 
But, you know, he made that character, Bobby Rivers. Yes, you know, yes. It was, it, firstly, it was tailor-made for him, but secondly, he made it real on screen. So he had this great ability, no matter what he was doing, was it being a rock and roller, being on stage, being on TV, to humanise those roles. It just seems like he had a very, very healthy attitude towards that because I imagine that for a lot of rock and roll singers or rock and roll musicians doing something in conventional theatre or doing a TV sitcom would be the antithesis of what rock and roll supposedly stood for, where he called bullshit on that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If, if you'd approached someone supposedly cooler than John to do all together now, they said they would have said, no way, come on, it's a, it's a dang little sitcom. But John thought, well, what can I do with this role? How can I make this role come to life? Which he did. It's not a very watchable show, but his character is very watchable because he's yeah. naturally funny. I just don't think he was pretentious in any way. I don't think he was bothered about cool. Cool didn't matter to him very much. It's like, what am I doing next? How can I do it as well as I possibly can? But the irony to me, and, and I kick myself on the backside of thinking about this, I find myself writing about a lot of great Australian frontmen, okay? I've written about ACDC, says Bon Scott. I've written about Mark Hunter, Shelley Strawn, Johnny O'Keefe, all these great front people, right? And I've always been asked, you know, what's the shortlist? What's the checklist of great Australian frontmen? And I've never included John. And it's a stupid oversight on my part. And it's this silly mindset of thinking, yeah, but he wasn't just a rock and roller. You know, he was all these other things, which is why he's not in the ARIA Hall of Fame because he's not seen as strictly a musician. You know, he's, oh, no, he was an entertainer. He did all these different things. And there seems to be a strange sort of snobbery about that. It's a real oversight. It really is because, like I say, seeing him with the Foster Brothers, he had the leather trousers. He wore them well. He had the great mane of hair. And as I learned, never be a guitarist in John English's band because when that hair gets wet, he had a thing about whooshing his hair to the side and, of course, he'd spray his guitarist with sweat. (laughs) I've got to confess, I had a huge laugh when you mentioned that in the book, like in the early part of the book. And it wasn't just in the band, it was on stage as well. Simon Gallagher said he kept great distance from John on stage quite deliberately. <laughs> he got sick of wearing all his sweat. I think it's a real oversight and it's really unfair to his legacy to say, oh yeah, but he was a dabbler. You know, he dabbled in all these different things. He wasn't a dabbler. He was really good at all of them. And I can't think, going back to your original question, I can't think of anybody who's succeeded so well in these different areas. It's just uncommon. It seems to me like for a lot of musicians who do break out and they do something on film, it's more like a vanity project. But as you say, with John, it never was. It was always something that he took seriously. You think, right, well, I like to act. I'm going to put everything into it. It wasn't about just, oh, I want to see myself up on screen. Check. It was just, here's something I can do. I think I can do it well. Well, when he got approached to do Against the Wind, that came out of doing those Crawford homicide, Division 4, all those shows, where John, I think the quote was, I was always cast as a um, an axe-murdering, drug-crazed hippie. That was his typecast. But then they approached him, and the producers of Against the Wind had worked through the Crawford system, and they approached John for this very straight role as Jonathan Garrett in Against the Wind. And John said to Mario Milo, his, his friend, his collaborator, he said, they want me to act. I don't know why. But it wasn't as though he said, they want me to act. There's no way in the world I could do that. And I think that was really telling. A lot of people would say, oh, no, I don't think I could do that, or that's not cool. John just went, they won't act. I don't know why, but I'm going to give it a shot. Did it really well. He brooded for 18 episodes.
coming back to the whole point you say, well, possibly why he hasn't been included in the ARIA Hall of Fame. Do you think that as a performer at all, that he's still in people's minds? Passed away five years ago and there was a period where his name was like the biggest thing or one of the biggest things in the country from all that he did. But until your book came along, I don't remember anyone saying online or on TV or anything talking in recent years about John English. Is his legacy still in people's minds? And if not, congratulations on bringing him back into the conversation. It certainly seems to have kick-started a lot of conversations about, oh, God, yeah, I saw him at Nambucca Heads Bowling Club in 1987. It was the best gig of my life. Oh, there's a lot of online chatter about people just going, damn, yeah, I'd forgotten. I'd forgotten what a great singer, what a great performer he was. I think there's still quite a hardcore group of followers who, firstly, are still devastated by the fact he's not around anymore, but he left such an impact on, on quite a big slice of Australia and a little slice of Europe, as I discovered, too. Did he fade from memory? Yeah, probably the mainstream. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, he didn't really have a hit for the last 30 years of his life. You know, he, he's, his peak period was from, I guess, 73 through, as a commercial artist on the charts, was 73 to about 85. But then, of course, he got into Paris. He got into something much deeper and heavier and, and more serious than recording pop songs. But he was always a, a performer. You know, he was touring at the time of his death. In fact, he was about to go out on tour again when he died. So he never stopped performing. And he's still, I mean, at the end, the audience was significantly smaller than they were when I first started seeing him in the early 80s. But he'd still pack 500-seat clubs and things. He'd still get an audience. It was just that he was sort of under the radar of the mainstream by that point. You know, he, he wasn't Johnny-ish pop star anymore. He was, you know, he was a veteran. Damn that word. He was a seasoned entertainer, John English. He was the guy you remember from, that person. But he was still out there doing it. I mean, The Rock Show, which was his last big production, did a big, big business for several years. It was a big show. But because he wasn't getting coverage in, I don't know, Rolling Stone or any of those magazines, something I regret because I was at Rolling Stone for many, many years. And I think the only thing I ever wrote about John was his obituary. It's like I should have done better. But he was still out there. You never stop. So let's go back to something early. I mean, not quite the beginning because that's the Sebastian Hardy days, but my first indication of who John English was, my, my older sister went and took me to see Jesus Christ Superstar at the Palais Theatre. I mean, obviously he was the star of the show. This was the story of the New Testament as told really through Judas's eyes. I found it interesting in your book that you say, now thinking back to what happened with Scorsese in the 80s, it's natural that in the 70s there would be people who said, no, this is disrespectful, this shouldn't be done, rah, rah, rah. But just as a kid just watching this, and I'm I'm a nice Jewish kid from the suburbs of Melbourne, so I had to keep this a secret. I didn't tell anyone I'd been to see this. And the story meant nothing to me. But as you said in the book, there are a lot of people who went to see this who were just thinking, yeah, what a great set of songs. And the thing that always stayed in my mind, I was wrapped to find some live footage of it on YouTube, was of him singing Superstar and him doing these cartwheels across 
across the stage and I was thinking do I remember that right and I watched his film clip and yeah sure there he is he's doing that it was all about him being the entertainer yeah yeah he was very very physical on stage there's no doubt about that but think about Superstar you know he it wasn't though he was working in isolation you know John Paul Young was there Stevie Wright was there Marsha Hines later on guys from Air Supply Rory O'Donoghue you know and all these great people in the crew like Jim Sharman and so on you know big people who went on to big big careers were all around him but yet he still as Tim Rice said to me when I interviewed him for the book he said it's almost 50 years but to me he was still the Judas he was the guy who just owned that role that's big praise because I mean the most popular version of the album so I believe would be the London cast recording with Murray Head who does a fantastic job yeah well the Australian production was only the second production of Superstar it had been done in London it hadn't yet been done in New York I might have that wrong it might have been done in Broadway and not West End but Australia was the second and Tim Rice was in the front row when John performed on the first night and he knew who John was and John knew who Tim Rice was it would have been pretty intimidating but it didn't matter you know he just owned the role he was born to it but also John knew music inside out from he'd known it for ever since the album was released his sister had brought back a copy from the UK John and his brother Jeremy had just played this record over and over again and John said if they ever cast this in Australia I'm playing Judas he's got the best songs not so much he's got the best role he's got the best songs and that made perfect sense the story goes that John and Jeremy his brother was so excited about going to audition that they drove from Cabramatta to the city which is back in this what's well, 1972 it's a hell of a trip it's a good hour and a bit got there theatre shut down no one there and they thought that's it we screwed it screwed the pooch we're not going to get the role we're done and the cleaner come up and said mate you're a day early the auditions are tomorrow so um, <laughs> so it started there was a false start to it all and as it turns out when John walked into the, the foyer and sat down with all the other people auditioning for the role he sat next to Trevor White who he'd never met before in his life and you know they were both expat poms they had it found they had a shared sense of humour they were into the goons they were into Python and before they know it within a few weeks they were Jesus and Jesus which set them both off on you know pretty impressive careers that's the thing that I find really interesting in the book because I had not heard anything about Trevor White post JC Superstar and according to the book not only did he keep on working but the two of them John would say oh perfect thing for, for Trevor I'm going to put him in Paris he was a pretty loyal guy you know <laughs> the people, and also I think he just knew that Trevor was really really good he was part of a kinks touring ensemble you know amazing stuff and you know so all, like I say all these people associated with that show went on to very stellar careers I mean I saw John Paul Young only play about what 18 months ago to a thousand people in a theatre just up the road from where I live you know and just kill them just absolutely slay them John's not short of 70 I don't think from memory you know he's um, he's yeah if he was the same age as John yeah he'd be early 70s and just absolutely murdered it so it was hell of a career maker it really was it's interesting that he did have all these people there's a lot of people who he started out with either in Superstar or in other ventures who he seemed to work once he met them throughout the rest of his working career so you know Trevor White JC Superstar and then put him in Paris Marsha Hines in JC Superstar and incidentally I saw Michelle Fawn and I didn't even know that Marsha Hines was part of the Superstar cast and then he went and recorded the uh, Jokers and Queens EP with her Simon Gallagher all those Gilbert and Sullivan productions and they hit it off Mario Milo from Sebastian Hardy and Against the Wind and Dark Horses and the guys from Baxter Front and the Foster Brothers you know, they were with him for many many years and you know Greg Henson 
started out in JC Superstar. So why do you think that these people all stayed loyal to John or John stayed loyal to them? Was that part of his working class background as well? You look after your mates? Yeah, a lot of those people shared similar roots to John. A lot of them were expats. A lot of them came over as 10-pound poms. A lot of them were, you know, what do we used to call them? New Australian. Oh, they're a weird mob. Totally. And I mean, they shared a common working ethic. The guys from the Foster Brothers, I sat down with Peter Deacon and Greg Henson. This is 18 months ago, uh, probably towards the end of writing the book, they said in almost five years, John died and we still expect the phone to ring. You know, we spent 30 years working with that guy and it was an annual thing. We're back on the road. We'll be gone for three months. We'll be gone for six weeks. Whatever it was, they were going to be involved. And John, I mean, he was very loyal, but I think he just also recognized when people were really, really good. He knew Mario Milo from, he met him first in 1969 when Mario was about 15. And there's this great story that I relate in the book that uh, they were playing a gig in Wollongong where I live now. Literally a kilometer down the road from where I'm sitting, they played this show. And John was in the the Sebastian Hardy, I think they were the Sebastian Hardy blues band. And Mario was in a band called The Click. And Mario was this young hotshot guitarist, right? This Italian kid. John came up and he's singing The Age of Aquarius because they were, the Sebastian Hardy were essentially a jukebox band, you know, they were a covers band. And so, you know, the moon is in the center. And then he, he sang, This is the dawning of the age of Aquarius. <laughs> and Mario said he's sitting, standing there and he looked around and he said, Did I hear that right? And then, of course, came back to the chorus and John sang it again. And Mario said it was, that was, I was the only person in the room who kind of got the joke. And then later on, John tweaked the lyrics to um, Hole in My Shoe, the traffic song which probably best not repeat read the book uh, it's all there but so they connected pretty strongly back in 1969 mm. and then Mario drops in and out of John's career probably for the next 30 years you know so I think he just saw people were whatever project John was working on he knew who'd be best suited to that and if he had the facility to bring them in he did so you know I mean John was the king of the Foster Brothers obviously and that band kept pretty tight and pretty consistent for the better part of 30 years you know Greg and said to me, I spent 30 years looking at John English's ass. You know, that was his career. <laughs> he said, it's going to t- if you ever write a memoir, that's what it's going to be called. But it's not as I discovered John Burke's bridges as well. I mean, there are, were a couple of his bandmates who worked with him for a long time who didn't want to talk in the book. You know, right. one in particular said, John created such chaos in my life that I'm still now trying to fix, trying to repair. I don't think I want to revisit that. He was loyal, but he wasn't, it wasn't that he was flawless. He um, had a lot of character flaws. He was very human. That is definitely something that you do bring out in the book. But I think that I certainly walk away from it was his lust for life and his lust for entertaining. Coming back to the whole point about him being a very, very funny guy. I mean, you've already gone and talked about the age of a hairy ass. Um, you, I think the quote that you use in the book is he had a ferocious need to please an audience. Sure. And I'll just quickly tell you a story. I think I only ever got to see the Foster Brothers on one occasion. I'm embarrassed to say that. I mean, I saw them in other things, but on the one occasion, it was like a pub down by the beach here. They went and played, and I think it might have been the encore or very late in the set, he brings out six ribbons. If I were a minstrel, I'd sing you six love songs to tell the whole world of the love that we share. If I were a merchant, I'd bring you six islands with six blood-red roses for my love to wear. 
there are these two girls at the front of the crowd and they're both completely pissed. And any Americans who are listening, I mean in the drunk sense, not in the angry sense. So yeah, these two girls at the front and they were singing along very off-key with six ribbons. John puts his hand up and John Delamore stops and he says, Shut up! This is a sensitive fucking love song! <laughs> but he took that into um, the Pirates as well. You know, he would interrupt moments in the Pirates of Penzance when the audience was overreacting and say, I have some very important dialogue I need to do. Can you keep it down? You know, that kind of stuff. So that was him, yeah. And I, I'm sure, you know, was he half serious, I guess? Did they stop? Oh, they did. I think everyone laughed. I mean, look, he was very close to the end. So even if they'd been tempted to start up again, they wouldn't have had much of it. But but yeah, that was just, he won the audience over so well. There's a moment on the Beating the Boards live album, which Mm. is really one of my favourite live records ever. And there's a couple of moments and they're the one, which is, yeah, it's a bit corny, but he's trying to entertain. He's performing in Sweden doing I've I've Been in Love Before. And he stops speaking some Swedish to the audience and then says, would you like to learn how to speak Australian? Repeat after me. <laughs> you know, really, to us, it seems very corny, but it was him being the all-round entertainer. And then I want to talk a little bit more about some actual songs later on, just to sort of get a feel the stories or your feelings on certain songs. But one of my favourite of his singles, because it's such a beautiful, tender love song, is Words Are Not Enough. And in a live context, John thought, no, well, fuck the tenderness put that to one side and he tells a rather bawdy tale of... Oh, it's the one about the ute, isn't it? Out the back in the ute! He would not be doing that song if we were around today in that fashion. Although, (laughs) I found a film clip of him doing that song with Peter Couples. Uh, He still did it the same way, Out the Back in the Ute. Words are not enough to show the way I feel about you for the time I will always want you Well, Peter Cups actually recreated that at John's memorial service. Oh, and really? And I'd say it went down like a lead balloon. Oh, no. Well, he didn't have the panache, shall we say. And, of course, it was not what a very grieving audience was expecting to hear. So while it was representative of the guy, it probably wasn't the best moment to bring it back up. The funniest live story I was told was by Greg Henson, and he said that, the, again, involving a drunken audience member, he said that they were playing, and, you know, they would play, you know, if they are in Melbourne, they'd fill the Bombay Rock. If they are in Sydney, they'd be playing all these suburban venues where I was raised, you know, Reesby Workers, Sylvania Hotel, all these big thousand capacity rooms, beer barns, essentially. Mm. And uh, they were playing somewhere, and Greg, because he's a drummer, he's on the riser, and he's got a slightly better view of the audience than the rest of the band. One night he said, I could see this woman making a kind of drunken, staggering manoeuvre through the crowd to get to the front of the stage. And John always had a fan positioned nearby, A, to keep him cool, but B, to blow his hair in that, you know, appropriate rock star style. And But it was 
was an oscillating fan. Okay, yeah. so um, this woman staggered down to the front, and she was just down near the, the speakers at the front. And Greg said he spotted her, and he thought, this is not going to end well. He could just see something bad was about to happen. And he's playing, and as he's playing, she threw up into the fan. And, of course, the fan is spinning. And so John copped a little, but, of course, it span and hit Greg right in the face. You know, he pulled the lot. And he said, while it was a wonderful thing to play drums with 30 years to John English, there were downs. <laughs> I want to come back briefly to Jesus Christ Superstar. And it just seems like it's an unusual show to come out when it did, because we're talking about the late 60s, early 70s, when that would have been written. And it's time that the counterculture is out in force and it's uh, rejecting the values of its parents. And whilst I can see that Jesus Christ Superstar is not necessarily a reverential reading of the New Testament or whatever but the show is still very popular about the life of Christ or the last three days or whatever in the life of Christ and then a couple of years later God's spell comes around which is more about the teachings of Christ rather than about his life and what was in the air where these two shows not only were mega popular for their day but keep getting revived where's it that shows that were created in a time that was rejecting everything audiences especially young people were sort of rejecting their parents values it was you know not interested in going to church or wherever we want to be free to do our thing what was it about that time that made these shows successful it just seems sort of counterintuitive that those shows would even be created yeah i mean firstly john was an atheist okay so john had no religious connection with the storyline at all he was looking at the character of judas as a, a good role to play with these great songs mm. you know he, that was his first and foremost consideration i think though he probably saw superstar as being a bit radical anyway because superstar drew a lot of, it was very controversial you know it was a re-examination of the life of christ and the relationship with judas and all this stuff you know there's again stories that were related to me about when they the actual opening show show was at the Adelaide Festival of the Arts. It's a big outdoor show, black tie kind of number. And when they did a sound check, their hotel was on the other side of the park where they were going to play. And John and Trevor White are in costume and they're walking back after sound check to go there. And there's a big protest group, as it was every night almost throughout the show's very lengthy Sydney and Melbourne run. And uh, John went over and said, oh, what's going on? You know, Judas wanders over with Christ. You know, what's going on here? And they said, oh, we're protesting about this show. You know, it's anti Christ. He said, have you seen it yet? Well, no. And he said, well, what are you talking about? And just walked away. You know, mm. so he, he under, he, A, he could shut down a crowd pretty, very, very effectively. And B, he saw that it was a controversial show and he probably enjoyed that. That was his mother coming out in him, you know, this anti-authoritarian figure. But as far as the broader popularity of those shows, well, I guess Superstar sold tickets. <laughs> and what's big at the moment, it looks like Christ is making a comeback. You know, <laughs> The third coming of the second coming or something. Third coming, that's right. You know, um, I don't know. It's hard to explain. But I guess all those shows were seen sort of reimagining a very traditional thing, religion, through more contemporary 
guys. You know, had hair as well. You should throw that into the mix. You know, Godspell. Um, I guess they were seen as a little bit more edgy. Godspell seemed to be far more reverential of the original text. I mean, if anyone sort of objected to it, it's because how dare you tell the story of Christ in pop music? Sure, but sure. whereas Superstar was making certain points, Godspell really, I think, I mean, I don't know this for sure, but the lyrics, aren't they taken out of the texts or that? But they certainly seem to be more faithful to the idea, more more traditional, just with popular music. So it just seems to me unusual that it would have been embraced by a younger audience at that time. Well, because I think Godspell was running at the same time as Superstar in Sydney. And there's a story, John Waters very kindly wrote the foreword for the book. And he said he'd auditioned for Judas 2 in Superstar, but walked in when John was auditioning. He said to Harry and Miller, is there any role for a disciple left? (laughs) But then he went and got the role of Judas in Godspell. And John and and John Waters would get together and he said, we got together every week and compared notes about how it felt to kill Christ eight times a week. So, you know, there was a slightly radical component to it as well, you know. Yeah. But it was, again, a job of work, you know. As far as John was concerned, A, he loved the story, loved the songs, but he still saw it as, you know, the next thing that I'm going to do. You know what, while we're having this conversation here, it just makes me think that possibly, maybe not to the same level of musical output, but I'd say probably John Waters is, and for American listeners, not that John Waters. Look pretty for the picture, Connie. <laughs> not the pink one. No. no, no, not the pink flamingos guy. British-born Australian John Waters is possibly the closest to my mind as being a peer to John English because yeah. he he had I mean he had great acting chops. Who Rivers Run? He did all the Rivers Run, which was kind of his against the wind. Yeah, that's right. right. Exactly. His and through a glass onion was probably his Paris. You know that. Kind of- I went to see Looking Through a Glass Onion on the very first local production where it was just him and Stuart Darietta. Yeah, right. And then went to see it second time. It came back with a, like a full band, and I just thought he can dine out on this for years, and sure enough, he, he has. has. Uh, 30 years, I think, it's been running. Yeah. So, yeah, that's a, that's actually not a bad comparison. Yeah, John's had a you know, TV career, small screen, stage. He could sing. Uh, can't sing as well as John English, though. No. <laughs> well, to be fair, no one could. And I was just sort of thinking about this this morning because you brought this up earlier on where there are a lot of people who are fairly snobbish. You know, I was, oh, well, he wasn't part of the 70s counterculture. He wasn't part of the Sunbury musicians sure. type of set. You know, not he was not like as cool as or as like Billy Thorpe or... or well, it was a Greg McCainch or someone like that. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. Well, the, I mean, but that, that whole Greg McCainch is part of that Carlton-based uh, subculture, the alternative yeah. culture, which just happened to make it really, really big. But I was thinking that a lot of the songs that he did, certainly when you get to albums like Calm Before the Storm or Inroads, which were definitely more that big triple M anthemic type of rock sort of thing. Sure. What saves them? I mean, they, they, they're some good songs on there, but I've been in love before or survive, I'm a survivor or something like that. If it had been put in the hands of someone like Steve Perry or Brian Adams, I'd never have given it another listen. With John, is his voice, it was always that level of honesty. And I'd never sort of consciously digested that until this morning. I was just sort of thinking, that's what makes the songs work as well. as I mean, there's some great songs and there's some songs which aren't necessarily in my league. He could carry a mediocre song. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I mean, and, you know, there's probably quite, there's quite a lot of mediocre songs in his back catalogue, mm. but he can deliver them. You know, he can deliver them authentically and make you feel connected with them. And when you give him, when he's got a really good song in his hands, he can elevate it to be really great. I know the Handbags and Glad Rags was on a list of stuff that we wanted to talk about. 
to me, I was introduced to that not through, I think Chris, was it Chris Farlow did the first Yes, record? it was, yes. It yes. was Rod Stewart that I'd heard and thought, wow, you know, there's a guy. And early Rod Stewart and John English are, to me, a very interesting parallels in so much as they weren't great songwriters, but they could really get inside a song. I listened to Rod Stewart sing Maggie May or Handbags and Glad Rags or Reason to Believe or any of those kind of songs early on, some of which John covered himself. You go, okay, he's not just singing it, he's narrating it. He's living that song. And that was an ability John had. And I think his version of Handbags is actually much better than Rod Stewart's, much better than Chris Farley's. Oh, you know, yeah, absolutely. It's a definitive version. He really gets inside this song. And it was really funny to me years later to hear it as the theme of The Office. Yes. Just the instrumental version. And uh, it's like, oh, right, okay. Why isn't John English singing this? <laughs> isn't this a John English song? I find it interesting that, okay, so John English isn't unique in this because it had been done by Chris Farlow and Rod Stewart before him, but I sort of find it is, it's an unusual song to be sung by a young man because when you sort of think of it, the theme of the song is it sounds like it's from the perspective of an old man telling someone young show some respect to the previous generation who worked their asses off so that you could have this life of middle-class luxury. And obviously, well, in, in John's case, you said he had this working-class background, so he did respect the work and he did respect what had come before him. But I still found this, like, in that era where the... I bring up this expression again, the counterculture yep. was working so hard to move away from what had come before them that a song that is... Ultimately, I don't want to say conservative, but certainly a song that rejects the common thinking in the rock fraternity or what the the late teen, early twenties. Bourgeois, isn't it? That's what it is. I, I wasn't going to use that expression, but all right. It is. It is. I mean, it is. But then again, this is the era when Cat Stevens was singing "Father and Son." A guy in his twenties is singing a song from the perspective of not just a kid, but a you know probably a man in his middle years passing down this judgment about trying to be live a fairly conservative life, you know, get married, do the right thing. So I think John was an interesting, massive contradictions. There's a quote from John Waters I'll find for you. He had this great way of saying it, but in a much more poetic sense. John was, while quite radical in some ways, as had been sort of beaten into him by his mother. He's like, yeah, don't beware authority. They're fucked, basically. They don't know what they're doing, you know. He could also be quite conservative. You know, he loved the royal family, for instance. Yeah. Story goes that when Princess Diana died, he almost had to cancel a gig. He was so devastated. He just couldn't get his head around this absolute tragedy. So there was a lot of contradictory stuff going on with John. He would have seen Handbags, and I'm just, I'm spitballing here, but I think he would have seen Handbags as just a great song. Great singer's song, which is what it is. And, you know, the fact that he could deliver it convincingly when he was, what, probably 73, probably 24 years old or something at the time, that's testimony to the guy's ability as a singer, let alone anything else. But mm. to me, he could just really get inside songs. And if the song, say, for instance, Hollywood 7, if the song had a storyline that he could really get into, well, then he owned it. I 
I'm not sure he overanalyzed lyrics that he didn't write. I think that's a way of putting it. You know, a good song was a good song to John. Yeah, and and yet, given the fact that we'll come to the whole Paris thing later on but also with an album like Some People it seems to me he was always in love with a good story because a lot of his songs are story and Some People to me is like an album an omnibus of short stories yeah, every, yeah. just about every song tells a tale I want to explore that a little bit wider in a moment but one theme that was very popular for him to sing about was about life as an entertainer either as a musician so songs like Turn the Page Every time I sing a love song, beating the boards. I'm a survivor was another one. I'm a survivor. It was a dichotomy of life on the road and missing loved ones just for a couple of hours of feeling like he was king of the world. But then there's also songs not necessarily about the life of a musician, but the life of aspiring to the big life. Like you mentioned Hollywood 7, which really, in a way, that sort of runs like a great dark 70s Hollywood film. Um, It's noirish. Very noirish. And even possibly the very lighter version of it in Hot Town. You have these aspirations, but no one's going to know your name after your 15 minutes. You're Warholian, 15 minutes. And you make a great case in the book that he was very well grounded. He wanted the adulation, but he knew it could blow away at any time. But I just love the fact that this is a large part of his songwriting or storytelling via songs, part of a large part of who he was. Yeah, well, it was the biggest struggle of his life, was to balance the fact of being John English public figure and being John English father of four living on a farm up on the Hawkesbury River outside of Sydney trying to be have some kind of private life. One of the most interesting parts of writing this book was sitting down with his kids and talking about the life. They had a property up at a place called Glenory. When John was training to ride a horse for Against the Wind, he was up at this area up on the Hawkesbury and he said, wow, this is great here. You know, John was living at the time in Surrey Hills. The house kept getting broken into. I think eventually they left the key in the door because people were going to break in. You know, you might as well make it easier for them. And he need, But also he was becoming a bigger and bigger star. He was a public figure and it became difficult for him when he was with his wife and kids he'd married his wife and she was his high school sweetheart Carmen he had a couple of young kids at that point and he saw this property and said this is the place you know this is the place I I can escape here and at that time the Hawkesbury was becoming a little bit like Byron Bay has subsequently become right and I think in Melbourne maybe the Mornington Peninsula or Brighton places like that if you've got a bit of money and particularly for people in the spotlight they buy this hideaway there that's where I'm going to disappear to well John uh, was up there at a time when people like Mike Walsh, you know, the TV show mm. host, there. a bunch of actors were up there. Uh, you know, uh, I remember Graham Kennedy came down here. He was down in the Highlands. Everybody was buying their hideaway. And for John, it was perfect because he lived such a public life for, let's say, six months of the year. He'd be touring. He might be on TV. He might be doing a stage show. He's a very, very public figure. It was impossible to miss just because of the way he looked. This was perfect for him. He could just disappear from that, go home and just completely disappear. But he had troubles adapting to that. He'd come home and he might have been away for three 
three months. When it got to the point where he had four young kids, well, those people have got on with their lives while John's been away. This was before Skype or Zoom or mobile phones or any of these kind of uh, easy ways to stay connected. When he was away, he was away. He'd come home and the kids were telling me that it would probably take a week for him to get back into the rhythm of domestic life. A, because the hours are very different. <laughs> you know, let's face it, you know, when kids were getting up was the time the Foster Brothers would typically be going to bed. So, you know, he had to rearrange his whole life. But also he did feel like a stranger. He felt like a stranger at home. And that was really hard for him. He had to go out on the road for a number of reasons. Strictly financial, you know, he had a growing family to provide for. Uh, he lived on this big property. He had a, a tendency to bring home every stray animal that he found on the street, which, you know, I think at the point they had 12 cats, some horses, dogs, you name it, they had it there. But he also had that creative itch that he needed to scratch. He couldn't stay at home forever. He needed to be back out in the spotlight. So this tug of war between domestic harmony and creative fulfillment and also simply making a living caused him a lot of grief, caused him a lot of anguish to the point that when his kids got older, he took them out on the road with him. If they were playing somewhere like the Twin Towns up on the border of New South Wales and Queensland, where it was more like a, uh, a resort hotel, you know, he'd bring the whole family with him. You know, that was his biggest thing in life for his kids, you know, and he had to find a way to maintain that even though he was called away for such long periods of time. And writing about it as a parent of two youngish kids myself, it's like, I get this, you know, everybody's job, even if my job is spent 90% in my little dark room at the back of the house, I'm still in my own world. You're still separate. And I get that. But John's was a physical distance, physical separation from his kids. One of the saddest parts of the book to me was right at the end of his life. You know, he'd been living up in Coffs Harbour for about 10 years, long way away from his kids who were all down here in and around Sydney. And just through circumstances, they were young adults. He hadn't seen them as much. And on his deathbed, not that he knew it was his deathbed or no one knew it was his deathbed at the time, but what turned out to be his deathbed, he said, I want to recuperate. They said, you need six months to recuperate. He said, great, I'm going to spend it in, I think it was his daughter, Josie's, uh, they're going to build a granny flat. They're going to put him there. He was going to reconnect with his kids in as strong a possible way as he could. They were going to get back on family holidays. They were going to do all these things that they They'd missed for some time. They were the most important things in his life, and he never got to do them. That was just devastating for me just to write this. It was like, man, the poor bastard. He genuinely knew what he needed and was making taking steps towards fixing this problem, this gap that had existed, had grown between him and his kids. Um, he was, you know, he was never going to get back with his wife. They were long separated, but never divorced. Mm. They said, why get divorced if you're not going to remarry? And they both went, yeah, no point in that. But he really wanted to reconnect with his kids, and I guess talking to them, spending a lot of time talking with them for the book, those times on the farm when John had got back into the rhythm of being John, an English family man, were the best times of their lives. You know, that were the times that they look back on with such fond memories. You know, going out the road with dad was fun and a bit weird, but being at home with him when he was just the bloke on the tractor listening to the footy on a Sunday afternoon, nudity was very big at the farm when they all slipped off their gear and some baked beside the pool, you know, all that kind of stuff were the best and most vivid memories that they had. And I found it really heavy and hard to work on. It was tough. You did mention in the book that there were moments where he didn't quite know what to do as a father from those times he came out off the road and he would occasionally lose his temper with the kids for maybe trivial things. But there's one moment that probably gave me the biggest laugh in the book. I'd love you to relate the story to anyone listening out there. And this is the one where he'd get stories from the kids that they were in trouble for not always wearing the correct school uniform. Yeah, well, you know, again, he was his mother's son, Andy 
establishment. You know, teachers were to be looked upon with some skepticism, okay, as were all authority figures. So they come home, and now you have to understand, John's kids, with the exception of his son Jonathan, they've all gone into very non-entertainment careers. They weren't interested. They saw the spotlight through their father's world and had no interest in it whatsoever. So they really liked just going to school and just being regular kids. But of course, they were John English's kids, and that was unavoidable, you know. And this is around the time of All Together Now, when he was on TV, you know, and they were the butt of all these jokes. Gee, your dad was stupid last night. Gee, your dad's jeans were a bit tight last night. All this kind of stuff. They'd come home, and it'd be simple, traditional school stuff. Wrong uniform. Didn't send their homework in at time. And John's answer was, just go back to school and tell the teacher, fuck off. <laughs> And they, and it, it was almost like Life of Brian, you know, oh, how should we fuck up, oh, Lord? <laughs> They, they said, Dad, look, we just don't think that's the best approach. You know, how should we do this? So he'd write long letters, 10, 12-page letters about how his kids didn't have to conform and, you know, it's ridiculous, don't enforce your ways on children, all this kind of stuff. And it only made the situation worse for them. So, you know, they had to find other ways. And then there was this very funny story about it was the Easter Day Parade, Easter Hat Parade, and John tried to dress one of the kids up as the Last Supper. And I think there was a bottle of wine involved in a loaf of bread and a hat you know and it was very clearly yes that must be one of John English's kids you know <laughs> no one else is going to do that at then because they were just at a public school you know they're just at the local public school it wasn't like they're at I don't know Sydney grammar or something like that it was just the school down the road and try as hard as they fit in it was very complicated for them because this is a time when John was a very 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 public figure so yeah it was, it was tricky but yeah his, his solution to most problems was to tell them to fuck off <laughs> It's a shame that he didn't have a book on parenting. I might have told my kids to tell their teachers the same thing. Well, I know lots of the in crowd. I like to think I'm one. I spend all my winters. It's sad, it's just a blazing in the sun. Let's talk about a few songs. This is something that we discussed off air that would be a fun thing to do to actually talk about a few songs that we love. And I'd mentioned to you before that Some People was a pinnacle album for me. And I remember there was a lot of enthusiasm from the album reviewers, you know, the scribes who might have sort of written him off as, oh yeah, he's just that pop performer, were suddenly writing, oh my goodness, this album is really, really so good. And the storytelling, as I've mentioned before, is a big central part of it. Paris got its origins here. She was real. There's this great ghost story that's more about this character's descent into madness. Like a Stephen King story set to music, yeah. Right. Waterloo, which I'm surprised he didn't sort of maybe think, oh, maybe I ought to write this as a story because that would have been a pretty amazing stage musical. But as much as I love all those cuts and I love the whole album, the single off the album which was sort of an outlier from the rest of it. It was just John and the band having a bit of fun. And that's a great story song. Some people have all the fun. Do you have a story behind that song? Anything about the creation or anything about the album? I think the album, let's see, it was 1983. It's at the period when John's at his performing peak as a rock and roller. You know, the Foster Brothers are the hands down, guaranteed, full house band. Six nights a week touring across the country, making very good money, doing very well. Probably a period in John's career where as a commercial artist, the recording artist, He's probably just past his peak, you know? He's not having the hits that he once did. 
did. I think this is the start of his period of probably becoming a fully fledged songwriter. Whereas before, you know, he's better known for covering other people's songs, Turn the Page, Handbags, Hollywood Seven, all those songs are written by other people. John's moving into the singer songwriter phase in his career. Yeah, you're right. It's an underappreciated record. It's a really consistent record. There's not a dud song on the record. She Was Real taps into his love of Stephen King and, and sci fi. And it's a, I remember live, it was a particularly effective piece live. Great lighting and John's great storytelling abilities really drew you in, really sucked you in for seven minutes. You know, it was a great story song. But yeah, some people just live, it was just funny. It was a moment of great humor. You know, it was a moment where John's natural ability as a comic shone through. The storyline, of course, is ridiculous about this guy when he spent 16 grand on his MGV and, you know, he was, where did he go for the summer? Go to St. Moritz, I think. Go to St. Moritz. For his summer, you know, it was just a lifestyle. John's summer was spent in Fiji. It wasn't spent in the French Riviera, you know. So he wasn't writing from experience, but he was sort of casting himself as this character, you know, this kind of Euro trash kind of character. <laughs> and it's very effective, you know. It was a bit of another great character creation, which something he got into much heavier further down the line. But, but you know, in the next few years, mm. I think his next, the next few albums actually were all, you know, singer-songwriter type records. He's probably under the little under for his ability to write a great song, I think. Not that I see much necessarily in common between John English as a songwriter and Paul Kelly as a songwriter, but Paul Kelly was always someone who was known to be able to put himself into someone else's shoes. And it's like Paul Kelly wrote a lot of songs from the point of view of a woman. Yeah, and, yeah sure, and sure. So, so then it was like, ah, oh, right, okay, it's obvious he's doing this as a storyteller. Too often a songwriter is thinking, oh, I didn't know that you thought that way. No, because no one ever asked an author, are you the main character? But I don't think John ever belonged to that classic singer-songwriter kind of mindset. You know, it's me, me, me. You know, the, yeah. the James Taylor, I don't know, uh, Neil Young, Gordon Lightfoot, all those people who sang songs that, maybe not Gordon, but you know, people, Joni Mitchell, you know, mm. people sang very personal songs. I'm not sure John really wrote a lot of those. He wrote a lot of songs about things he was interested in, be it sci-fi, be it Euro trash, or be it Greek history. Well, you, say, you said in the beginning of the book, he was because of the stories his father told him as a kid. Yeah. He was a big history buff, which is what led to Paris. Some kids were raised on Dr. Seuss. He was raised on Jason and the Argonauts and Helen of Troy, you know, <laughs> which when he got to Paris, it was a very natural thing for him to do because he knew the story inside out. But of course, as you mentioned, on some people, that's the starting point because the song Oh Paris. He learned early if you want somebody, go all the way. So when he met her and he fell in love, he just stole This is a funny backstory. You know, it's a story about Paris and Helen of Troy. You know, this doomed romance that brought down a country and caused thousands of deaths. Just the usual stuff. John would take it you know, when he was promoting the record. They'd say, oh, you must love Paris. You've written a song about the city. It's like, you idiots. Don't you get it? Don't you see what this song's about? But he had the same problem with Camila, the song Camila, which was everybody thought his wife's calm and it must be about her. Camila. Come back again 
but it was actually uh, based and inspired by a 19th century lesbian vampire story. And I've met Carmen, and she's not a 19th century lesbian vampire. I can say that with all assurance. So, you know, he had this frustration that people weren't really listening. That led to Paris and, and you know, where he made a point of letting people know exactly what the storyline was. But it was a source of frustration for him, you know. He would put himself into songs, but in different characters' roles. Maybe that, you know, really personally, the only really deeply personal song that he wrote that really worked was Glass Houses. Born in 49 strictly autobiographical it couldn't be any it's like something off john lennon's first solo record it couldn't be any more autobiographical it's right there he's spelling it out for you even to the point of the year he was born i mean i gotta confess the dark horses was probably not for me such a great album i mean that had that very 80s production sure. sound to me which sort of turned me off and maybe there were some great songs hidden under the production machine but glass houses is absolutely amazing it's you know this great song about the positivity at the start of the baby boomer generation and the idealism that had turned sour and there's this one line i think within the first verse the future was mine so they said and then it all just goes downhill it's his behind blue eyes that's what it is john loved pete townsend he loved the who you know he aspired to that kind of level of songwriting that pete townsend to me was the premier you know the premier rock and roll songwriter mm. and there is if and john would do behind blue eyes live he'd play it live so the influence on that song is very very clear sonically and also autobiographically you know there's a lot of stuff there about john as in Behind Blue Eyes, there's a lot of stuff about Pete Townsend. So, you know, he was he was drinking from a very good well, shall we say. He knew where the good stuff lay. And also, I think he, at his best, could make his own version of that. Glass House is a song I didn't know that well until I started writing the book, to be honest. Right, yeah. And uh, it, it became almost like a storyline for me. It almost helped me write the book because there was this chronological sequence of events in John's life from being born. And as you say, all that optimism of, you know, that early 70s phase. And there's also something in there slightly about him dodging national service and missing out not that anybody missed it but the killing fields of vietnam and all that kind of stuff you know it's all there but yeah it's an uncommon song in the the john english oeuvre he didn't write a lot of songs i think because he was perhaps a little fearful of revealing too much of himself maybe or maybe he just enjoyed being different characters that's something as well well i mean that comes down to his literal acting side of his life you know he's not necessarily the drug crazed killer of crawford productions and he's not or jonathan garrett he say, well, well, I'm playing a part with speaking lines over here, and over here I'm going to play a part through song. And yeah, he just, that's a very good point. He yeah. just loves stories, it seems. He probably, I think, enjoyed that a lot more, felt a lot more comfortable doing that than bleeding all over the record. You know, that really, I don't think that was really his. So he probably would have seen that as a bit melodramatic, a bit indulgent, probably. There was a period, I think, in, I don't know, where was it, the 90s, early 90s, maybe? And I've completely forgotten this about this until you brought it up in the book, Bus and angels. One for the money and two for the show. Three for the basket who plays by the road. They say life's a bitch, 
And then you die And if wishes were fishes Then all pigs would fly But there's always a busker So hey busker I I went to see at the uh, I think it was the Comedy Theatre Here in Melbourne Mm. And like it started off just him on the stage You know the song Always the Busker which came out and I think that's a terrific song I've got to say but the rest of the show I can't even remember why but I remember coming out feeling hugely dissatisfied with it yeah there's a lot of background to that so John had written and produced finally at the cost of a million dollars Paris him and David Mackay had worked on this record throughout the 80s finally got it recorded in the early 90s brought in big names you know the London Symphony Orchestra Denise Bloody Roussos you know Francis Rossi from Status Quo you know, Harry Nelson, White, Harry Nilsson, you know, amazing people and very unlikely combinations. But they produced this huge record that didn't get to the stage, which was John wanted that record to then be picked up by a producer and say, great, I'm going to put this on Broadway. I'm going to put it on the West End. It's going to be his biggest superstar. And it just never happened. That was the first time in his career. If you remember, if you look at his career from superstar to countdown to against the wind to the pirates to and then on to um, all together now, it had been hit after hit after hit after hit and suddenly he had a flop the record didn't sell as well it won an aria but it didn't sell as well as he'd hoped he needed that record to sell in order to draw the attention of people like Cameron McIntosh big producers you know who were going to stage this because John didn't want it to be to do a couple of weeks at the comedy theatre with all due respect he wanted it to be on Broadway he wanted to go Hamilton with this bloody thing he saw the potential in that and it didn't happen was it knocked back purely because the record didn't sell well because I mean it seems to me that during the 80s or the 90s there was bloody Cats and Miss Saigon and Les Miserables, you know, these huge productions. And whilst I'm not the greatest fan of Paris as a musical, but there's nothing in there that's too far away from these other big mega shows that people were flocking to. Was there something of, oh, the album didn't sell well, or did no one back it because of cultural cringe? What was it? Firstly, there's Jesus Christ Superstar, when the original recording came out prior to the show, you know, it was a hit record. And that is a rule of thumb on Broadway. If you've got a hit record, yes, we look at it as a possible production. We might produce the show itself, right? So John adopted that principle. He wanted Paris to be a hit record because he knew the more records you sold, the more commercially successful it was, the more likelihood of someone backing it. But it did get to Cameron McIntosh, who produced a lot of those shows you mentioned. He was the guy to go to. He was like the Steven Spielberg of the theatre in the 90s. And he said two things. He said it's too 70s sounding. It sounds too much like something you might have heard around the time of Superstar and it's too expensive. Building a Trojan horse costs quite a few dollars, apparently. You know, <laughs> simple stuff like that. He said, I can see I can, I can, see what you're trying to achieve here, and it's too expensive on the back of a record that isn't that popular, isn't known in London, isn't known in New York, where a superstar was. People knew that record all over the world by the time the show was staged. So, yeah, there was a couple of things that were against him, and it really sent John into a downward spiral. He did not direct his confidence, his self-belief, his ability to be a commercially successful successful artist. He destroyed his private life, his family life. These kids said to me, Paris was his fifth child. He lived with that for so long and nurtured this thing for over a year, 10 years. You know, it was a long, long process that kept with him till the end of his life, in fact. You know, there were still people that he'd be calling right towards the end of his life saying, I've got an idea about Paris. You know, what if? But at the same time, he was resistant to change. People, his manager was saying, what if we make it shorter? What if we change the order of the song? Some writer said to him, why don't you make it a happy ending? 
because the ending with uh, Paris and Helen of Troy is not a good one. And he was resistant to it all. No, because he said, what I've created here is is the story. It exists as it is. It's not going to be changed. And it sat in limbo for 10 years. Once Paris, once he re- accepted that Paris was a failure, he said, screw it, I'm going to go and write another musical, which was Buskers and Angels. Mm-hmm. It was rushed. It wasn't properly workshopped. The storyline was not a good idea. John was too old to play the part. The relationship between him and the ingenue was a bit cringy. Even his kids told him at the time, Dad, it's not right. It's not fully developed and it feels wrong that you're playing this role. Get Cameron Dado or someone like that who John had worked with. Get someone younger to play the role. Then it might work. He wasn't receiving signals from other people at that point because he was absolutely hidebound to make it a success. And his son, Jonathan, and, and also John had pumped his own money into Paris and he pumped his own, and I'm talking hundreds of thousands of dollars. And he did the same. Buskers and Angels, he was not only starring, he not only wrote it, but he was producing it as well. Something he'd never done. And as Simon Gallagher, who was a producer, told me, you don't take on all those roles. Simon had and regretted it. Really taxing. It's 24 hours a day. Even though you're on stage for only two hours, the rest of the day is organizing stuff for the next production or reviewing things or working casting and songs and all that kind of stuff. And John just was too bullheaded about the whole thing. His son, Jonathan, was part of the show. He was out with him and he said, we go into Melbourne, which is where you saw it. You know, we'd have three weeks blocked out and we'd do five shows and that was it. We'd sit there for two weeks twiddling our thumbs before we got to the next city. It was an absolute bomb. And that was the second big hit to John's psyche, I guess, that sent him into a real downward spiral that was only really corrected by the rock show much later down the line. So, you know, he was a victim of his own ambition, I think, in a lot of ways. But I guess, you know, with something like the rock show, which was mostly a jukebox musical that was yes and no yes and no I, I spent a lot of time with Stuart Smith who was the co-creator of that and he said that he and John had had long conversations uh, because to give you the backstory the, the first production of Paris was done by an Amdram company on the central coast in New South Wales very well regarded the Lakehawk Street Theatre and for literally on the smell of an oily rag they came up with a Trojan horse they came up with the works John was so impressed that he actually appeared in the production even though he couldn't do he was too much too old for Paris by that point so they developed this good relationship and, and John was always saying to him, I want to do something that's rock and roll based, but it's a musical autobiography, but not my songs. He said, what do you mean? He said, the songs that inspired me, the songs that got me started. So if you look through the first rock shows track listing, it's a bit more than a musical jukebox to John. John felt connected to a lot of these songs. about his relationship with those songs. So it actually, it, it unfortunately devolved into a musical kind of jukebox thing, which is when a lot of the original people got out of it. A lot of the people that John worked with originally who were conservatorium trained kids, you know, 18, 19 year old gun musicians. There's a great photo in the book of John surrounded by all these teenagers and that was the band, you know, yes. and they really, firstly, they love John. They're working with John English. This is nuts, you know. They were just, like I said, they were just out of the con and suddenly they're working with one of the biggest stars in Australia, but also they, I think they helped get John to regain his confidence as a live performer. 
you know, and as someone who could stage a show, could put together a show. And, you know, it, it went through, I think, three or four different iterations by the time of John's death. It was a keeper, but it didn't evolve in the way that all the people involved with the show hoped it would. It eventually got a bit too jukeboxy. But the original intention was, it's uh, yeah, John said it was a, a musical memoir, which I thought was pretty cool. You know, it's a pretty good idea. I love the idea that he wanted to do something like that in the first place. And I mean, okay, so it devolved, as you say, but after a couple of failed personal ventures, he came back with something that did prove to be a hit. So he pretty much had, he was a success at most parts of his lifetime over his career. And one can only imagine what would have happened if he'd still been around in 2021. He'd still be pitching Paris to someone. Oh, God. As I think I mentioned to you with typing our conversations while trying to organise this discussion, and my sister saw Paris at the National Theatre here in St Kilda. It was always weird to me until I read your book. I thought, hang on, this is this big album. Why is this being performed at the National Theatre. I mean, like nothing against that. It was done by an amateur group. I think it might have been Clock, who are like a fantastic group, but still it wasn't being performed at the State Theatre or something like that until I read your book. It took 10 years before John accepted that it wasn't going to be produced on the level he hoped for, and then he released the rights. But my sister saw it, and she told me very recently that she saw John walking through the foyer after the show. He signed the program, and she said he just had the biggest smile on his face and it's almost like once he accepted it wasn't going to be on Broadway or in the West End but it was being done he was still hugely proud of it and that well people are seeing it It yeah exactly and there's I got related stories of other productions where he'd just turn up and the people you know producing it again to be a little local theatre and be like my god the creator of the show is here this big star I guess he was charting the productions of it I think it was even produced in Germany there was a number of different productions around the world but never of the scope and scale John had hoped for. Think about it, though. It would have been the first Australian-created rock opera to be staged on an international level. We've got nothing, you know, we've created a few shows here. What's the early one that you made? La Bacchanalia or something like that, that he did after Jesus Christ Superstar? Bacchus, yeah, which was like an adaptation of a, I think it's a Greek story, but you know, you think about shows that have been created by Australians. I think, was Buddy created by an Australian? Shout certainly was, the Johnny O'Keefe one. Yes. So there's been a couple, but nothing of this level. It would have been Australia's first Les Mis. You know, it would have been this enormous thing. And it would have made John an international star, guaranteed. And who knows where that would have led. Poor guy. He dreamed big. (laughs) The curse, it's sort of an Australian curse, isn't it? To sometimes to have ambitions that because of geography, because of circumstances, you know, if John had been raised in New York or London, the chance of Paris getting on the stage probably would have been more significant and, and more possible than, you know, some upstart from one of the colonies, you know, coming up with this grand vision of Greek history set to music, a Greek tragedy. That was probably a lot for people to swallow. Despite the backing of people, you know, the support of people like Tim Rice and Andrew Lloyd Webber, it was still a lot to swallow. So I always think it was like a a great disaster, if, you, if that makes sense. It sort of scuppered John's career for a long time and really, really did his head in, but it was only because he had grand ambition. And let's face it, we've got a lot of people here who've managed to tone down their career level and maintain a good career for 30 or 40 years to keep doing the same thing over and over again. Whereas John actually had the audacity of thinking, I'm going to challenge myself and my audience too. I mean, we can live in hope and sort of think that, you know, whatever, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, there'll be some impresario who's thinking, hmm, I'm in need of a great show. I don't know what to do with this bloody wooden horse. (laughs) It's just here. It's been sitting here for years. I have crushed 
the cup of youth like a rose between my fingers but it's nectar never warm my weary heart I have watched life disappear like the creeping mists in morning for these ropes to tie me down will never part a lot of the book you said that you spoke with a whole bunch of people who he worked with in the entertainment field and you spoke with his family in great detail. Now, it's only been five years or so since John English died, but was it cathartic for the family to speak or was it difficult for the family to speak? How did you find them? Well, firstly, they were great. Uh, what they did is, yes, they approached me about writing the book and yes, they, you know, I guess, authorised the book, for, which is a term I don't really like. Sanction, maybe, is the best way to say it. But they had no editorial input at all beyond at the start saying look here's some ideas we had about topics and things that John addressed and tackled in his life and I'm, I thought it was going to be a list of albums but it was alcoholism adultery you know all these things like okay I've got carte blanche here this is great you know which I would be uncomfortable if I didn't have it in the first place if that makes sense talking to John's wife of 40 years about his infidelity was kind of daunting in some ways but their openness was amazing you know it really one of his daughters wrote me a message just the other day she said i finally read the book and i think it's the book that my dad would have hoped he'd written while he was still alive and i thought that's pretty good you know obviously the big difference between a biography and a memoir his would have been in the first person but the content which at times is really quite confronting we're talking about depression we're talking about alcoholism we're talking about as i say infidelity i mean he scuppered his own marriage basically he put some distance between him and his kids, him and his bandmates, him and the people he worked with through simple human flaws. But there was never any editorial interference. In fact, when I, I would show the family samples, just saying, hey, this, just so you know, here's how I'm going, never got any, don't include this, no, don't go there. In fact, so often they'd say, this is really interesting. Maybe you should write more about that. You know, and quite often it'd be one of the darker parts of the story. It was really surprising and really supportive. His kids, what I did, the kids, they, they were adults, they're in their 20s and 30s. Um, we had there's a family property out on the Hawkesbury and we said let's just all sit around for a day I said I, I don't have a real structured question list or anything and I sat down with them and they said what do you want from us you know what, what are you hoping for and I told them a story about my dad my dad used to work at Reesby Workers Club which was this huge entertainment venue and still is in the southwestern suburbs of Sydney one of his many jobs was looking after the artists so John English would come in and play a show would, my dad's role was to make sure he got the parking spot at the backstage and knew how to get to backstage and all that kind of stuff you know it was a great job and one day Johnny O'Keefe came in Johnny O'Keefe you know, so it's early 70s and he rolls up in this big red Pontiac you know you can't miss the guy and he said to my dad Jack here's the keys for the car can you just mind the car while I'm playing and he said as soon as we start playing shout I need you to turn the engine over and my dad think oh okay sure odd request but I'm happy to do that because you know my, my dad's job is done by the time everybody's in the venue so great he's out in the car park he's sitting in this big red Pontiac having the time of his life feeling like a million dollars and the band starts playing Shout and my dad turns it over and O'Keefe comes bounding down the back stairs even before the band's finished, jumps in the car, thanks my dad profusely and tears off into the distance. And not 30 seconds later, this big burly bloke comes around the corner, red-faced, and he says to my dad, where's that bastard O'Keefe? And my dad said, oh, he's just left, why? And he said, well, you tell him if he ever lays hands on my wife again, I'm going to break him in half. <laughs> 
<laughs> my dad dined out for years on the fact that he prolonged JOK's life. So I sat down. The kids said to me, what kind of stories are you looking for? And I told them that. And they all went, I get it now. I get it. You just want recollections, anecdotes about not a step-by-step chronological evaluation of, you know, life with death, more what were funny, weird, and sometimes sad events in our lives. Yes. And they just gave me all this great stuff. Very forthcoming. And um, again, as a writer, that's not always the case. It was a great relief for me. In fact, it was more a, a case of what not to include rather than struggling to fill the book, which was great. And, and, and subsequently, they've actually came out and helped me promote the book. But again, not in an intrusive way. You know, it's not like they're owning the book. It's mm. more like we think Jeff's book is a very fair and readable interpretation of my dad's life. Julian, who's the youngest son, I did a, a sort of semi-formal book launch a couple of weeks ago when he was there. And he said, you wouldn't believe it. I was just driving down Parramatta Road and I saw my dad. I said, what do you mean? He said, because we had a big uh, poster campaign. And he's, right, right. <laughs> he's on the side of the street with this spooky cover image in yes. very large. And he said, oh, I'm kind of freaked out. You know, my dad's all up and down Parramatta Road. I've seen the poster of the front cover of the book, Under Bridges here in Melbourne. I'm thinking, so I mean, that's the nice thing. Because, I mean, the book came out and I'm sort of thinking, I wonder what sort of business this is going to do. I wonder what sort of a promotional push this is going to get. And when I saw those posters, I thought, right, I'm so happy. I mean, I'm happy for you as an author because you're going to put a lot of work into getting this out. And I'm happy that... People are sort of saying, right, John English is important enough that we want people to know that this biography exists. Look, it's still a bit of a crapshoot to get beyond the core audience, but I think, and it's still too early to tell how it's really, the, the reviews are great. People love it, you know, and those many people who've read it so far almost universally love the book, you know, because it's rekindling all these memories, these great memories they have of seeing John live, seeing him on TV, seeing him on the stage, you know, meeting him in the pub. You know, I've got so many stories now of people saying, John English, yeah, he bought me a beer at the Sawtell RSL one afternoon or he was setting up for a gig in Newcastle and he came out and he said oh yeah sure let's sit down and talk about the football all these really matter of fact regular guy kind of stories are coming out which is really nice Um, I have a laugh because there is a a certain uh, there's always going to be certain people on social media who who feel you are um, unjustified or unqualified to write about this person who they know much better than you of course and there's been this silly thing about oh it's family sanction and they just because they haven't read it I think if they didn't know that they'd probably read the book and go has the family read this there's some really dark stuff in here they're clueless and frustrating and I've always said to people whatever you think is fine by me as long as you've read the book in the first instance if you're not going to read it don't pass judgment and I'm never going to force you to buy it just go to your library and get it it's fine by me but read it before you form an opinion uh, there is a certain sort of wariness sometimes about authorised biographies because people think they're watered down and they can be and I've worked on projects where I've felt a bit uncomfortable about a sort of overbearing presence on the editorial content of books not too often fortunately I, I did a book with Casey Chambers that was just again open season it was open slather people read that and went is this the same Casey Chambers that we love and devote ourselves to name our children after but that's another story altogether <laughs> but in this case it's surprisingly frank I think for a book that has got family backing in and like I say, they're dropping me lines and when I catch up with them, they're all saying it's the kind of book he would have written. 
if he had the chance to write about himself, he would have written this type of book. And that's the greatest praise of all, as far as I'm concerned. I love the fact that this book, whether it's officially sanctioned or not, the, the fact is that there's so many books that dine out on salacious stories. Sure. Or it dines out. I can think of one book I read about Billy Joel that was obsequious to the nines. And ugh, I couldn't get rid of that book quickly enough. But this book, you've gone and mentioned that there's anecdotal stuff. But it's not just a book of anecdotes, because that would be a completely different type of book. You are telling the story from it starts here, it goes there, but it's not about checklist. It's, yeah, sure. it's about making it flow and just basically want to say thank you for having written this book. I know that it's all too easy, especially when we're thinking about many of these great Australian artists of that period that, right, oh, is this book going to wallow in nostalgia? Okay, there's going to be a nostalgic element that can't be avoided. But the fact is that you've gone and written a story about who you said was a very human sort of performer. He had, he was down to earth. He wasn't without fault, but the book goes a long way to say, this is why we gave a damn about him. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, it's also interesting writing about people who are no longer with us. People get obsessed with how did they die? And I certainly, there is some attention to that in the book, but I'm more interested in how they lived. And I've said that so many times. I've written, I'm looking around now, Malcolm Young, Johnny O'Keefe, Mark Hunter, Shirley Strawn. I've written about all these people who are no longer with us, Jeff Buckley. You always get asked, how did they die and I said well I can tell you that but I'd be much more interested in telling you how they lived Yes, because that's yes. the only reason we're interested in them you know if they were just a regular guy who had an unfortunate accident and died on the operating table as John did we go oh that's a tragedy and we move on mm. but it's how they lived and what they achieved while they were alive is much more interesting and in that regard things like Paris and Buskers and Angels are still a complete success because he had this ambition to create great art or great stories that he was hoping people would be attracted to it. Oh, absolutely. After Paris failed, he could have just said, I'm putting the Foster Brothers back together and we'll go and do the jukebox show. We'll play John English's greatest hits for the next 20 years. And while that happened, he also continued to create new things, you know, and as far as a, a you know, a creative artist is concerned, that's fantastic. There are people, you mentioned Billy Joel. Billy Joel hasn't released a new record in how many years now? 1993 was there the last time, I think. There so. you go. You know, I've got nothing left. John had a lot left and he, even though some of those things were commercial failures and probably critically you know iffy better to have you know loved and lost right exactly exactly well you can write to me of truth and happenings inside or sell me a world that I don't need then hit your ride the driver laughs we chase behind trying to match his pace and you change our heads Final question I want to ask you is, musically, what for you is a highlight John English album? And we've already gone and spoken about some people, but and I'll include even like a, a, an anthology like English History if you wanted to go down, because that's such a great collection of singles. But what is a favourite album for you? Yeah, I think English History is a perfect call because for the majority of his recording career, John was a singles artist. He was a, you know, a popular recording artist who had hit singles. Although there is some you know deeper cuts on that record, it outsold everything he did. And there's a great story, a guy called Peter Plavsic, who was in Sebastian Hardy. He went on to work at Polygram and he was John's, I think he was John's A&R guy. And he said that in the time, in the, I think the first two months of that record being out, it made their entire budget for the year. You know, it sold several hundred, 100,000 copies. It was a huge hit. 
and a beat hit in Scandinavia as well. But beyond the commercial part of it, I think it's really representative because it charts his career as a recording artist pretty well. The original English history, I think, covered everything up to Calm Before the Storm, the first few albums. I know that there's a lot of people on these music discussion forums who turn their noses up at anthologies and they say, oh, well, if you're really a fan, then you'd want to get all the original albums. And there's something to be said for that. But a great compilation makes for great listening unto itself. And English History is just a great album. It does chart the trajectory of his recording career for a period of time, yeah. Yeah, but, you know, some people's a great record. Beating the Boards is a great record, great live record. So while he probably doesn't get a lot of acknowledgement for serious album artists, he came pretty close to writing some pretty good ones, yeah. And, you know, as a body of work goes, there's a lot of music there. Any songwriter or performer would be proud of that body of work, I, I think. Absolutely. Absolutely, absolutely. All right, look, Jeff, this has been an absolute treat. I love the book, as you know. I've loved having this discussion with you and any of the listeners out there. I'll put in the show notes how people should search out for this book. I know that there are probably uh, some of my listeners are based in the States or in Europe where he's not necessarily as much of a known entity as he was book here. Depository. The Book Depository in the UK. They ship worldwide for free and they have stock of the book. Anybody outside of Australia, go there. People who don't know his work but like a really great great pop tune it's not just something that you should listen to just for the sake of gathering a great body of work but also because you get an idea of what was happening musically in australia i mean we spoke earlier on we mentioned he wasn't part of the sunbury brigade but australia was doing a lot of things there was the big heavy rock blues based rock of the early 70s and then it went into that middle period of finding its way with slightly edgier pop and then there were the people like john english and bands like split ends I mean, okay, New Zealand, but we count them as our own because that's what we do. Dragon, who you've written about. And it's as much about remembering our musical heritage overall as it is about remembering his own music. Just briefly, with Australian-ness, you know, John English's sense of humour, and you talk about a song like Some People, that's where it really shines through the brightest. And you don't hear that style of humour anywhere else but in Australia. Deadpan, laconic, who would have thought, that kind of style. It's very hard to project that in a song. But he did that over and over again. And as I say, live, he could do it. He could turn, uh, you know, a very, very heavy song into something that would have a thousand people in stitches you know that's such a rare ability it really is a um, you know the way he could flip from she was real to some people to beat boards to you know Hollywood 7 all within virtually the blink of an eye different moods for different songs and all within like I say 20 minutes of a two hour set that's phenomenal stuff that really is that's sort of weird <laughs> you know you don't get a lot of that anymore that's for sure and I think it's a very distinctly Australian thing I mean he could write a serious song but he was not an earnest performer and that's what has really shown up through this body of work. I love that. So once again, thank you so much, Jeff. Actually, I, I guess I should finish off with one more question. What are you working on now? Are you working on another biography? Are you doing something completely different? I'm actually, it's a sort of rewrite project. I wrote a book on Keith Urban about 10 years ago. I'm really interested in the Keith Urban story, not necessarily on a musical level, but the simple fact that he sold ice to the Eskimos. He went and sold country music back to Nashville. That's ridiculous, right? You, that doesn't 
doesn't happen. He's probably, and when you think about it, outside of Canadians, he's the only international artist to ever do that. And I wrote a book about 10 years ago, and I didn't write it very well. And I've just got the rights back to it, and I've resold it to another publisher, and I'm pulling it apart, dismantling the whole bloody thing. As I did a few years ago with a book I wrote about Daniel Johns from Silverchair, it's a rare opportunity that a writer gets the chance to rewrite something. And of course, a lot has happened to Keith Urban since I wrote that book. So yeah, that's one for late next year. And I'm deep in it at the moment. Really, really, it's a great story because it's so unlikely. Some guy who was raised in Kabulcha who wanted to go to Nashville, which is the most insular music city in the world, and sell them back the music that they were producing in the first place. I mean, that's nuts. Just this, the, the level of ambition of that. And we talked about that with John English. The level of ambition behind that and, and sort of blind devotion <laughs> to this, you know, crazy odyssey. It always gets me in. It's a good story. It's a mm. really good chunky story and obviously there's the Hollywood tabloidy kind of quality to it as well with his um, with what has proved to be a golden coupling with you know, okay. don't hear a lot, we don't hear a lot of trashy tabloid stories about the Kerbins do we you know, no they, we do not they're doing very well so yeah that's what I'm into at the moment and, and starting to rewrite really getting deeply into the story again because I'd had some interaction with him I lived in America for a couple of years first met him in Nashville actually 20 odd years ago so it's sort of I'm drawing on some of my own experiences for that as well so yeah it's it's a good one. Don't know what to call it yet. Urban Cowboy kind of works, I guess. <laughs> of course. No, but then you got the connection to that terrible John Travolta film. <laughs> it wasn't his best work, was it? Kind of thing, no, it? no. Um, all right. So thank you very much once again, Jeff. And what we'll do now, we'll go to a break. I'll talk to you about what's happening on episode 145 of Love That Album. We'll be back in a moment. And then you walk inside all Once again, my huge thanks to Jeff Apter for his time and for his graciousness and some really great discussion. I'll include the details for ordering a copy of Behind Dark Eyes, The True Story of John English in the show notes, but you can order the book from jeffapter.com.au or bookdepository.com or hopefully if you like going into a bricks and mortar bookshop, then you can get it from there, certainly in Australia at any rate. Uh, I'm not sure how much of John English's back catalogue is still available, but I know that there's some great compilations that definitely still are able to be purchased for those of you who still like to get the physical medium which certainly is very much in my wheelhouse uh, i'm guessing his material is on spotify but it's certainly on youtube if you prefer to do the streaming thing so next month's show will feature another interview but i'm still just sort of ironing out the details so i'll just announce those on the facebook page when everything is confirmed i'll just say at this time that it will feature members of a very beloved melbourne band so until next month please 
please look after each other. Read a great book, hopefully behind dark eyes. Uh, listen to some great music. Watch some films. Please look after each other. Be nice to each other. Don't bully people on social media. You don't prove your devotion to anything by doing that. Tell your loved ones that you love them. Don't leave them in doubt. Words are not enough, so give them a hug. All the best. Cheers. Stop. Turn yourself around and lay it all down. And when you get days heavy with pain, I'll give you my nights easy. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.